with businesses and the value they create less rooted to the locality of any jurisdiction, it just pushes this free market paradigm on governments. And that's what we're seeing happen, right? They're being forced to compete just like every other enterprise on the planet. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the home of Bitcoin. How are you all? You must all be feeling pretty good right now. We nearly hit 50K. I think we might have tapped 50K on Binance this morning. I know that some places did, but we can't count on it just yet. But I think in the next 24 hours, we're going to smash through it. So it's feeling very good. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Christian Carolls and Robert Breedlove to discuss the concept of sovereign companies. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Today, we kick off with Sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin because they're badasses. Now, if you're watching Premier League football at the moment and you keep seeing a Bitcoin logo, you have a Sportsbet.io to thank. They love Bitcoin. They want to promote Bitcoin as much as they can. And they are the front shirt sponsor for Southampton, where they have put a Bitcoin logo. They are also the betting partner for Arsenal. So they are doing everything they can with football fans to spread the knowledge of Bitcoin. Now, with Sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. You've got football. Of course you've got football. You've got tennis. You've got American sports, motorsports. You've even got esports. Everything you could possibly think of. And also, for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions to find out more. And that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I have been using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin for all the management of my business. I told you about this about a month ago when they became a sponsor. I said I was looking for a decent wallet where I can audit my Bitcoin and do the parts of my business that I run on Bitcoin at the end of each month. I'm increasingly using Bitcoin to run the business. I pay people in Bitcoin. I get paid in Bitcoin and I needed a software solution that made it really easy at the end of the month for doing all my payments. Now, when Exodus reached out to me, I was like, dudes, your timing is perfect. What's your wallet like? Your wallet's got to be good for me, man. So I checked it out, and do you know what? They crushed it. I'm always going on about UX, and they absolutely crushed the UX. It was a perfect solution. So I was like, come on board, sign up, become a sponsor. I'm going to use your wallet. Now, listen, if you want to check out Exodus, just Google Exodus. Head over to Exodus.io or go on to the Apple or Google app stores and search for Exodus. Okay, we now need to talk about security, and we're going to talk about Casa, which is the very best solution for your Bitcoin security. I've been a customer, well, it's coming up for nine months now. I didn't have my shit together with my security, and I reached out to the team. I was like, Nick, help me out, brother. My security is all over the place. So I signed up, and I became a customer. And you know what? I've had so much peace of mind over the last nine months. I'm protected from my own stupid mistakes, which I'm very capable of doing, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And with Bitcoin about to smash through 50k, I know some of you are making some good gains on your Bitcoin. And I know some of you haven't got your shit together with your security. So come on, go and check out Casa. They do have a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and it's only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three of five multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders. And with Casa Diamond, which I think I'm going to upgrade to this year, you get their full service offering. This includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, they're best in class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so on to the show today, and it's another massive one. 
I have Christian Krolls, my good buddy from Bitcoin Magazine, and Robert Breedlove on to discuss the concept of sovereign companies. Now, this was a show I'd planned to do for a while. Not long after Christian wrote a great article for Bitcoin Magazine called The Sovereign Company Thesis, I reached out to him and we recorded a show. And then, just as we were about to release it, the news of Tesla's purchase came through. So I got back to Christian and I said, look, dude, I think we need to do this again. So we decided to re-record the show and we asked brother Breedlove to join us as he has been working on a concept for a show with me about the sovereign individual. So the original show was a banger. This one absolutely smashes it. So we get into how companies adopt Bitcoin for their treasuries, how they gain a new level of sovereignty and how this could challenge governance and nation states operations. It's a really interesting topic of conversation. I know you're going to love it. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. So please feel free to send me some weird shit. And outside of that, Go and check out neveredit.com. That's my newsletter. That's growing fast. I'm going to turn that into a news desk as well. So keep an eye on that. And also over on Defiance, we've got the Bitcoin dealers of Beirut. That's it, defiance.news. Go and check that out. Have a great week. I love you all. And I will see you all on Friday. Christian, how are you, man? Doing great, Peter. Excited to, to be on What Bitcoin Did and chatting with you. Well, we, sh- we, sh- we should be saying this is your first appearance. It kind of is, but I'll, uh, I'll explain to everyone in a minute what's going on here. It's kind of your first appearance, kind of your second appearance. I'm excited, though. Uh, Breedlove, how are you? Yeah, it's going to be fun. Breedlove, how are you? I'm good. Glad to be here, guys. Right, so let's set this up. Uh, this is the second recording of this episode. So me and Christian recorded a couple of weeks ago this concept, The Sovereign Company, based on an article Christian had been working on. And then since then, we have the Tesla news. And me and Breedlove in the background have also been working on this sovereign individual show idea. So... I spoke to Christian a couple of days ago. I said, look, let's do this again. We've got new information. Let's bring Breedlove in and let's make this a monster. So, But it's still kind of your first appearance, Christian. So welcome on. I've known you for since pretty much starting what Bitcoin did. Um, you've been around since the start. So it's good to do something with you finally. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been an awesome journey. I remember I contacted you after the Roger Ver show in, 20, in 2018. And I was like, yo, you got something going on here. Mm-hmm. And uh uh, from there, we started collaborating a little bit with the Let's Talk Bitcoin mm-hmm. network. And, you know, it's just been amazing to see uh, you and the show grow. I think that was episode 18. So that was like three years ago. Jesus. All right, listen, I'm going to I'm going to let Breedlove take the floor first because because of the work he's doing, uh, the articles he's been writing, the research he's been doing. Uh, a lot of people will have heard about the sovereign individual I know Bree Love, you'll say, read, the, just fucking buy the book and read it. You know, I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through, but we will have people who are going to tune into this show. They've not heard, read the book yet. So let's do the setup. Explain what The Sovereign Individual is about. Sure. So I think the general setup, um, well, there's a lot. The, the super high level is that we could say that the, the shape of society or the shape of our the way we organize ourselves into socioeconomic systems tends to reflect the technologies that we use to collaborate with one another so the the high level overarching thesis is that the 20th century industrial age had the large top-down nation state because we were dealing with large um industrial equipment and industrial effort right we were we spent a lot of the 20th century actually mobilizing resources from the earth to build buildings, to create capital, make stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And the thesis of the book was that the microprocessor, 
or digital technology would subvert and destroy the nation state as an organizing model for humanity. Um, and the big impetus for that initially is, and this is on like page 25 of the book. If you look at pages 24, 25, it goes super deep on what they call, I believe they call anonymous digital cyber cash, what we would call basically Bitcoin. And I made the point that once <clears throat> people had this option to store their capital in a medium that was uh, uninflationary and could not be confiscated, that this would, everyone would figure out the calculus behind this, that it's just better to hold money that doesn't inflate or can't be, um, can't be confiscated easily, let's say. And that over time, all monetary capital would move into this medium. And this would essentially 100 or near 100% deprecate the revenue model of the state because the state only bases its revenue model on taxation and inflation. So this taxation resistant and inflation proof money that they call the anonymous digital cyber cash would be the, the catalyst for bankrupting the nation state model effectively. And then it goes deep into other tech, but I think that's kind of the, the high level setup. And Christian, the book had a huge influence on you, right? You love this book. Yeah, so uh, I I currently own like nine copies of the book, and I, I always maintain a nice stash for when I meet Bitcoiners in person. I make sure that they have a physical copy. I've also shipped uh, like 25 copies to Romania to Vlad, who uh, I'm sure that you guys uh, know each other quite well. Uh, but he let me know back in the day when he was working for Bitcoin Magazine that uh, you can't get it in uh, in Eastern Europe easily. So I was like, we need to distribute physical copies of this book around the world. That's how freaking important this book is. Uh, so I've been uh, passing these out like Bibles effectively. And uh, it's just such a prescient book. It's uh, really, it was published in 1997 uh, and is just uses first principles, logic, and thinking and understanding to predict an unprecedented amount of things that are coming true today. And I would say is very, very, very directionally correct. But what was the what was the kick of you when you're reading it? Like, what was the trigger point for you? Like, okay, you know, you made the connections. You realize, because look, the thing about Bitcoin is we've heard a lot of these predictions even before everyone was talking about the sovereign individual, but sometimes in your head they're like, yeah, but really, I mean, really, are we going to see the fall of the nation state? You know, really, are we going to see sovereign individuals? What was the kicker for you? So, I mean, I I started reading the book as a Bitcoiner. Um, It was, you know, one of those books that uh, the people I respected the most, like continuously kind of uh, brought up. Um, But yeah, I mean... I think the fact that in 1997, on page 24 and 25, that they go deep on censorship-resistant, inflation-resistant digital cash, that is pretty eye-opening. But it has a very nice historical context as well. So some people consider this to be the drier part of the book, but smack dab in the middle really goes through how throughout history, technology has changed how we organize. uh, And it kind of gives a nice framework for understanding how things like gunpowder, things like the printing press, these things have, you know, fundamentally changed how we organize. And it's not like, I think a lot of people think like, oh, we all come to consensus with how we want to organize. That's not the case. We, you know, technology comes that changes the logic of violence that changes the logic of, you know, storing your wealth and it, it that influences how you live. Uh, so, 
uh, they then kind of go and look forward into the digital age and they use first principles thinking to kind of forecast, you know, with the microprocessor, with all of these new innovations, with the world uploading to the web, like we've seen in dramatic fashion in 2021, you know, what does that mean and what is that going to do to how we organize? And again, if you want to understand what Bitcoin is doing to the world, uh, I think that, again, the best book possible to read. I actually, my favorite bit of the book is the bit you're refer, kind of the bit you're referring to, the his, history lesson where it talks about how we went from hunter-gatherers and how much land we needed. I, I can't remember what it was. It was something like, was it 25 acres for a group of 50 people or something, whatever. And then through technology and through innovation, uh, people migrated to building farms and then store and farms. They had to store the crop and then people tried to steal the crop. And that kind of like evolution of uh, humans and how we organize ourselves and use technology and then takes us all the way up to the point of uh, where we are today and the nation state and and beyond that i i found really really kind of interesting um and i don't know about you robert but i I guess in the way you see it um there's going to be like future textbooks that look back on this stage of statism as a purely just another period yeah i actually this just comes to mind but Christian, I think I can credit you with me finally reading this book. You know, it was recommended to me by a lot of people in Bitcoin circles, but I think we had a dinner in LA or something and you were like, no, you really need to read this book. And I went home and like bought it that night and read it. So that just came to mind in this interview. Um, I remember that but dinner. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Korean barbecue. So, that's right. It was Korean barbecue. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for that, because this book has been tremendously influential in my thinking. But I, something else that I've learned recently was actually talking to Sailor and his overarching thesis on humanity, I guess, is that humans are, I guess you could say this, the purpose of life is to channel energy across time and space toward the achievement of some end. Right? That's what really life is. It's harnessing energy and then trying to uh, essentially proliferate itself across space and time. <clears throat> what distinguishes humans, though, is that we can channel energy uh, more intelligently, or you could say towards higher and more sophisticated ends than any other animal in the world. Right? We, can, we can coordinate our actions through the use of symbols, telling of stories. Um, you know, This is like the classic... Uh, I think the phrase Naval used was, you can organize 100,000 men under a flag on a battlefield, right? It's just an idea. But for a chimpanzee troop, they can only organize themselves in groups of like 150 strong. So it's this ability, if we consider our own efforts a form of energy, right? We can organize human energy at scale in a way that no other species can. And that's why we dominate the world. So the... It seems to me like uh, you could even look at the way we organize ourselves. It's, it is a device itself. So, you know, capitalism or the nation state or socialism, these, these different forms of statism, uh, they're a tool in and unto themselves. And the real purpose of that tool is to organize a peaceful society that can generate wealth through trade. Uh, at least ostensibly, like we know with communism, trade sort of collapses. And, and that's why it actually loses out to a tool like capitalism. So I think that the this 
takes us, this, this Bitcoin breakthrough takes us to a new, it enables a new form of organization that was never before possible. We like to say that, you know, in the U.S. that we're free market capitalists, but we know that every nation state in the world is centered on a communist structure, actually, called the central bank, right? It's the central command and control of money where there is no free market experimentation or iteration allowable. Um, that's what's handicapping humanity right now is we have this, this uh, bureaucratic or communist stranglehold on the free market in the most important market in the world, which is money, right? It's one side of every transaction. So in terms of what, how, I know it, sound, it sounds totally crazy today that the nation state could fall or fragment. But these, as you know, Christian pointed out earlier, it's not about our wishes. We don't all sit down at a table and decide how we're going to organize ourselves. It's the technological realities that prevail at the time that determine how we organize ourselves. How, mu- how easy is it to uh, project power over time? How easy is it to defend from the projection of power? And encryption technology basically changes the game. So the, the, big, the mathematical point that I think really drove it home for me when I read the book was this savings on inflation and taxation. So average U.S. citizen today pays about $10,000 per year in direct taxes. That does not include inflation. If they were instead able to take that $10,000 per year and put it into a savings account that yielded 10% per year, that, after 40 years, which is like the average uh, working life, that, is, that equals $4.4 million in savings. So with the emergence of something like Bitcoin, the question for the average American paying $10,000 in annual tax per year becomes, would you switch your savings account for $4.4 million in retirement savings? And that this, like, not, not that people cognitively understand this yet today, but this calculus sort of forces itself on market participants so, such that the more governments overreach and try to increase taxes or increase inflation, the more people are, are pressured into this offshore bank of Bitcoin. So Christian, while uh, a lot of people have been looking at the idea of the sovereign individual, you went down the rabbit hole of considering kind of the sovereign company and the role that plays in this kind of future world. Give me the background to why you looked at this as a subject. Yeah, so the, the really what I see here is we now have new monetary technology. This monetary technology has fantastic uh, properties that, you know, like Robert kind of indicated, have very real fiscal um, benefits to using the old technology. And I just saw it as a no-brainer that, yes, companies are already pushing the realm of sovereignty. Um, Google, Apple, the massive network effects tech companies that are operating globally, these companies in some cases are, you know, stronger than Western massive nation states. And in every case, they're stronger than every small, you know, tiny, uh, insignificant nation state. So like, what is it going to take for them to, um, you know, kind of take that next step in sovereignty and separate completely from nation states? And I just see that as the path of least resistance for, um, you know, kind of that next step towards breaking down nation state borders. And it really wasn't, uh, you know, an idea that was far outside the book. The book talked about this, that the economy is being uploaded to the internet that allows you to do business anywhere. And people are going to start optimizing geographically where, uh, 
where they're located in order to take advantage of the financial and uh, you know business operation benefits of of kind of being globally dispersed. And this idea of geographical arbitrage or jurisdictional arbitrage, like that is what Bitcoin enables. It enables people and the internet enables this is it enables people to pick and choose where they do business and have, you know, kind of this opportunity to do business in a better jurisdiction, a jurisdiction that is friendlier to uh, to Bitcoin, to in a tax- taxation from a legal compliance perspective but serve the entire world. Uh, So I just saw that as like the lowest hanging fruit really on like this next step of uh, this evolution towards a a smaller government sovereign world. So, I mean, that was kind of, you know, the impotence for writing that. And I really look and see the Bitcoin exchange ecosystem as being like especially the offshore exchanges as being um, kind of that first beta version of this idea of a sovereign uh, company, a company that is operating in the jurisdiction that is suits them best, and they are globally distributed to make them difficult to kind of take down. They have all of their value in Bitcoin, so outside of the financial system, uh, and uh, that makes them very anti-fragile, but yet they can easily serve you know, the entire globe, including American customers, uh, granted those American customers, you know, jump through some hoops. I mean, just seeing that example, seeing kind of BitMEX's resilience against the U.S. um, and then just kind of like, you know, try to forecast what that looks like if a bigger, more powerful, more legitimate company starts moving in that direction. I think we should expand into that and talk about the BitMEX thing and what actually happened, because that will give some context to what you've, you've just explained here. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, many people who are in the Bitcoin community and have been listening to the show, um, they're very familiar with BitMEX. And earlier in 2020, you know, I think it was the CFTC and other um, American agencies, they arrested Sam Reed, who is uh, a co-founder of BitMEX based in Boston. Uh, They effectively ordered BitMEX to shut down for, you know, violating U.S. laws, and they put out warrants for arrest for all of the co-founders. Uh, so normally when this happens, business immediately shuts down, funds are frozen, you know, the exchange stops operating and uh, and then, you know, the business has to kind of go into the courtroom and uh, and play by the nation state's rules. That did not happen for BitMEX. Uh, BitMEX is a very unique company in that they are 100% Bitcoin based. So none of their funds could have been frozen. They never ceased uh, withdrawals of funds. They never ceased operating business. And they actually kind of, uh, they had the ability to call their shots, right? So um, they never stopped business, like I said. They switched out their management team. And no one outside of Sam ever was in the custody of the United States. And now Sam, while he can't travel, he is he is effectively free in the U.S. and, um, you know, and is, again, playing on on his rules. Right. He lawyered up. He has his funds like, you know, they're defendable. Right. So I think that this is a great preview on like what is going to happen and how resilient these companies are going to become when they adopt Bitcoin. Uh, pretty love just thinking about the idea of a sovereign individual um for a lot for a lot of people it's a transitionary phase where you start to adopt some of the technologies and the tactics to become uh part self-sovereign uh we we know of certain people there's like i did interview with max hillebrand he's essentially a digital nomad he's probably 
uh, a lot more self-sovereign than say oh, I am. I'm tied to the UK. I've got kids here. I've got a house. I've got a mortgage. I've got a registered company. So there is like this transitional period. How do you think about the idea that somebody is kind of like a part self-sovereign? And how do you think about the idea of being completely self-sovereign? Yeah, I mean, it's it certainly exists on a gradient um, between being just full on under the control of the nation state versus kind of one foot out into digital space. Um, the other analogy that the book uses that I really liked that made a lot of sense is they prefer what they call cyberspace, which I've, I've been calling digital space in my writing because I think it's uh, more apt for a more apt description. Um, they analogize it to the high seas. They say that essentially because this domain, you know, there, there's maritime law is very different from jurisdictional law. And in, in the high seas, basically because there's this, it's so, it's impossible or very costly to project dominion um, into the high seas and maintain uh, monopolistic control there that no one really does, right? The best uh, we can do is monitor uh, the waters and defend them to protect the, the terrestrial monopoly that the nation state holds. But no one can really hold, like we can't say like this is the American ocean or, or anything like that. Um, and so the, the, the high seas have basically become this refuge for you know, anyone that wants to do anything condemned by the nation state, whether that's gambling or, or uh, you know, buying things duty free or whatever it may be. So they, they analogize digital space to that, saying that it is this, you know, cosmically vast domain where you can basically cloak yourself behind encryption. Um, you can, dis, uh, you can uh, detach yourself from your identity in digital space. So you can, you can achieve these levels of self-sovereignty that are just, you know, before the information age were not even thinkable, not even remotely possible. And the, the other advantage of that is you can be, in many ways, non-local, right? So when government tries to crack down on a BitMEX, these guys are, it's just like a fluid organization, right? They, they're just on servers, they're on Bitcoin, they can really roll that to anywhere in the world, anywhere with an internet connection. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And I guess the other thing is, people tend to think that this all sounds rather fanciful or, or like science fiction, but Dan Hell dropped this in one of his recent uh, newsletters actually about old examples of companies becoming uh, rivalists to the state, like establishing so much sovereignty that they were their own sort of little nation state. Um, we look at something like the Dutch East India company, which had 40 warships and 10,000 private soldiers uh, defending this far-flung spice empire, they, were, they had these long uh, spice trading networks that they were actively defending, like a, like a nation state. The British East India Company controlled a large colonial empire. They had three hundred thousand strong standing army. Uh, this is in the mid nineteenth century, and then ultimately that was kind of dissolved into the British Empire eventually. So this company sort of merged back into the state over time. And then there was uh, the Hudson's Bay Company, which is the largest landowner in the world um, and controlled a big territory called Rupert's Land, which at one point was 15% of the land mass in North America. So there's this, to, to Christian's 
thesis, there's this big incentive really for companies to gain this autonomy as well, the sovereignty, because, you know, they're in the crosshairs of nation states more so than individuals even because they're larger, they represent a larger tax base and they're, and they're more, they're, it's easier for a government to deal typically with a large organization because they're centralized, right? You can go straight to, uh, the management group and, you know, you could historically, you could seize their funds or freeze their funds or force them into, to, uh, some unfavorable tax agreement. So with that, pressure from nation states there's a there's a commensurate incentive for companies to become more and more self-sovereign so we think to uh increasingly play this jurisdictional arbitrage game and to do that effectively you need to adopt bitcoin so there's there's there are pressures even beyond the fiscal and monetary that we discussed earlier that actually get into more of the sphere of sovereignty itself well this is why tesla it's such an interesting case study and also the reason we're re-recording this because it plays a really important part of the narrative here. So when you talk about, Christian, you've talked about regulatory arbitrage and yourself there, breed love. What happened with Tesla when during the coronavirus in California when they had the massive restrictions on them, essentially they made the decision to move out to Austin, right? That was a I'm pretty sure that was a, a, a big influencing factor on uh, certainly Elon moving anyway. Um, and I'm trying to remember. Didn't they, didn't they move a factory? Did they move a factory because of that? Uh, yeah, I think that they're moving a lot of their operations, including uh, production. Yeah. So when you think about it, yeah, Elon Musk is one of those people. He doesn't really give a fuck too much about the government, and the state. He'll ha- he'll happily challenge them. I mean, he's got the weight, right? He's got the clout and the ability to do that. So actually, it kind of feels feels like it was almost natural for them to become one of the first big companies to adopt Bitcoin the way they've done. I mean, like I know Square adopted Bitcoin, but it was 50 million. We're talking about 1.5 billion here. So again, Breedlove, how much of this do you think it's, uh, this is Tesla protecting revenues? And how much do you think this is Tesla recognizing like a transitional stage and and actually requiring themselves to be self-sovereign? Well, again, I'm not sure how much this is i mean i'm sure they have to be thinking about it right as as governments escalate um their unfavorable tax treatment of companies this has to be discussed in boardrooms and at the management level i don't know if they're discussing self-sovereignty per se at this point but it, it, it sort of only goes that direction the big thing with elon if i recall correctly there was a california politician I don't even remember her name. I don't pay attention to politics yeah. much. I think she tweeted at Elon, like, fuck you, basically. Right? Yeah. I mean, what kind of world are we living in? This is These are elected officials meant to serve their constituents, of which Elon is one of the, the largest, probably, uh, contributing constituent to the state in terms of, of tax revenue. And here she is going on uh, a social media platform and just saying fuck you like it doesn't what it just blows my mind um that someone would shoot themselves in the foot like that but that's kind of the the outcome you get uh i think with a really bloated bureaucracy so 
Yeah, we've got it yeah. here. It's uh, Democratic San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez issued a strident response to Tesla CEO Elon Musk's threat to relocate his company's headquarters out of California. Uh, she tweeted, fuck Elon Musk. Um, and then I've just seen next to this um, that last summer Tesla revealed that its newest automobile factory will built, be built just east of Austin in Del Valle. I don't know, I can't pronounce that correctly, maybe. And in November, Musk's transit-orientated underground tunneling project, the Boring Company, announced that it is expanding to Austin. There you go. And then you did it, right? And th this, is the, this yeah. is the core theme, is that optionality keeps counterparties honest, right? If I'm a bank customer with you and I've got a billion dollars in your bank, you're going to be much more likely to deal with me fairly if you know that I have an exit option. If I have either other competitors I can go into or Bitcoin or anything else. The, sometimes the, uh, the power to do a thing, the option to do a thing is even more effective than actually doing it. It just keeps, mm. there's a symmetry of relationship, right? And that's what Bitcoin and the digital age enables is it, it, it re uh, levels the playing field, I guess, between nation state and individual and corporation such that, we, the companies and individuals, gain this unprecedented level of optionality, which forces the nation state to be more fair in its dealings. And in the long term, you know, per the thesis of this book, forces governments to compete and earn citizenship versus just uh, harvesting us, which they do today, right? We just get a tax bill. It's just, here's your rate. Here's what you owe us. Doesn't, you have no say-so in this matter whatsoever. We provide that you... We provide whatever services we want, and we charge whatever we want, and you have to pay it. That uh, top-down command and control, monopolistic control, will not hold in the digital age where people have this unprecedented level of optionality. It's uh, you're essentially talking about the idea that Balaji talks about, which is like the ten thousand cities thesis, right? And that it's a, it's, it's, it's in some ways it's a, it's a better form of democracy. In that, you know, and I think Rogan was talking about this with Musk this week, where they talked about essentially in some states, your vote has zero impact. It doesn't matter what you do in California. It's mm -hmm. going to be a blue state, but you can, but, but your foot has a lot more impact. You can leave, you can move your, yourself, your company, your tax revenues to another state. And we're seeing that impact now. We're seeing it with Mayor Francis, what he's doing in Miami. We've seen what's happened in Wyoming. Andrew Yang's just come out now and said if he becomes mayor of New York, he's going to make it a hub for Bitcoiners. Um, it's quite interesting times because in some ways, they're, they're kind of taking themselves on a journey to their own irrelevance. Well, so I would argue that it's not their own irrelevance and that this uh, ability, at least in the United States, to kind of have domestic jurisdictional arbitrage is actually what has made the United States great all along. So we discussed okay. this, Peter, you are in the UK. It doesn't matter which, um, you know, which county you live in, which city you live in, you know, what happens in London is the law and you have no choice. It doesn't matter how draconian it is, but in the U S there's uh -huh. this friction and optionality and guess what, you know, things can be horrible here in california but you know for the last three weeks i got haircuts and uh went out to bars in utah because it was available and i could just drive there easily my money still works everything still works then identity system still works um so jurisdictional arbitrage is the game like okay bitcoin is just a tool to allow jurisdictional arbitrage 
for individuals. And I would argue that companies have been taking advantage of jurisdictional arbitrage far before individuals have, right? A Delaware company in the United States, like that is mm. jurisdictional arbitrage. Apple holding mm -hmm. all of their funds in, in, Ire in Ireland and Dublin, that's jurisdictional arbitrage. And that is only going to increase as, uh, you know, people start to, to adopt Bitcoin because Bitcoin is that common globally, you know, neutral settlement layer. And it uh, allows for that, you know, the kind of the property rights that uh, enabled inner domestic jurisdictional arbitrage in the U.S. to kind of happen everywhere. And it really flattens the world, as uh, Anthony Scaramucci has said. It's funny. Yeah, you that. We would call this jurisdictional arbitrage. It's just market competition, right? It's just like, if I don't like the service yeah. you're providing me, I'll go to your competitor. And that's what, to, to Christian's point, companies have been doing that, playing that game forever. We have these reverse mergers into, you know, Ireland-based shell companies to keep funds offshore so they don't have to repatriate and pay taxes. You're driving to Utah to do things like, this is just the digital age. I guess the, the other thing is with information flowing freely and uh, not with business Businesses and the value they create less rooted to the locality of any jurisdiction, it just pushes this free market paradigm on governments. And that's what we're seeing happen, right? They're being forced to compete just like every other enterprise on the planet. The, the, the funny thing about uh, Apple and, and Ireland, what happened there was uh, the EU ordered Apple to pay $13 billion in, in basically in back taxes to the Irish government. And the Irish government didn't want it. They're like, we don't want this. Because if they had to pay those taxes, they were missing out on the like the, the beneficial tax arrangement that Ireland was offering it. Because Ireland was part of the EU, it was seen as anti-competitive. Um, which is why a lot of lot of people actually are, you know, were in favor of Brexit, because we don't have this opportunity to have these this kind of competition. I mean, you could you could argue that the EU is kind of the perfect example of going backwards. Like Europe actually was more decentralized and it had a lot more kind of uh, of the U.S. effect um, before the EU. And then since the bureaucracy took over, they've just stifled that competition. Well, we saw what happened recently with the um, AstraZeneca vaccines. You know, they were struggling on this. I think it was like their second batch of deliveries. And the the UK had obviously got their orders in nice and early. The EU was pissed off about this. And they actually wanted to block delivery of orders that had already been made um, just because they're in slow process. I think the Brexit and what's happening with the UK now has highlighted the problems of that bureaucracy. But you make a really good point, Christian. Like, I'm here in the UK, right? I, I, it doesn't matter where I live in the country. I've got the same shit rules. The only way I have any... Uh, jurisdictional arbitrage is, is to leave the country, which is actually very difficult if you've got children. Now, if it was regional, say I could move to the next county, you might think about it. But to leave the country, it's almost not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, underrated in the US. People think it's the democracy, it's all this stuff, states' rights. And that's why when I see um, folks celebrating red states flipping blue or vice versa. I'm like, you don't even get it. Like, you don't get what makes this country great is we want to have a massive diversity so that way consumers <clears throat> and people um, have maximum choice. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I don't really align with either party. Um, I'm, I'm more or less just localized, localized, localized. So I love seeing uh, what's happening with the mayor of Miami and, you know, kind of what the after effects of there. And again, like when it comes to 
okay, who can leave their country easily? Who, like, you know, let's just zoom out. We're not only talking about folks in the U.S. Like, this is a, a particular feature of the U.S. that makes it hospitable for citizens to kind of have this jurisdictional arbitrage. But on a on a state level, on a country level, you know, co- companies I think are a lot more in position to take advantage of leaving, relocating, and again, now that more and more of commerce of the eco of the economy is uploading to the internet the high seas as robert puts it it's going to become easier and easier to relocate and then if you're holding bitcoin to kind of separate your money from the financial system and then all of a sudden you know you can uh you find yourself in a position where uh, you're shopping around jurisdictions. You have a lot more flexibility with where you go. Your money works everywhere. You can accept payments from anyone anywhere. And, uh, you know, that is going to have a massive effect. So ultimately, I think the long-term end result of this is borders changing. But I want to kick it over to to Robert. Yeah, I, I was just talking to Christian. I, like, what... The idea of borders that just the strongest military in the room gets to draw these imaginary lines around a group of people. And then it, what actually the sovereign individual calls this a tax farm effectively. So the intention or the purpose of the nation state is to secure that border such that there is peace within it and that people can trade and create wealth. So effectively, the border becomes this mechanism for securing private property rights peacefully, right? So not only are we recording ledgers of, of say, who owns what, but we also have these mechanisms of nonviolent dispute resolution, like the rule of law. So if someone, you know, infringes on your property rights, you don't have to raise a militia and go conquer them. You can sort of depend on the court system uh, to get retribution instead. And that, a lot of that purpose and functionality just is provided orders of magnitude more cheaply by something like Bitcoin and, and, and software more generally. So I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, I guess that the one test case we have of this was when U.S. capitalism basically outcompeted Soviet communism in the 20th century and we saw the USSR fall. It fragmented back into the states it had previously conquered. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Like as Bitcoin bankrupts the nation state model, will countries just fragment? You know, one example would be Texas and the U.S. I think in their state constitution, they have uh, an inbuilt option to to become their own sovereign state. So maybe we'll see something like that happen. But I wonder, too, if and I think about this a lot, how will property rights be handled uh, post nation state? collapse. So actually like your property rights, say in your home or, or an equities portfolio or, or other forms of property, I would suspect that these will become more local. Uh, first of all, I would expect they'd become digitized because there's a lot of efficiency gains there by just, um, there's an Oracle problem to be solved, but there's a lot of efficiency gains if you can get a property right into a distributed digital database uh, that's managed by software versus a centralized uh, bureaucratic database. Um, but I would expect too that the enforcement of those property rights will become more localized again. So you'll see government sort of in the digital age revert back to its free market origins, which were in the agricultural age actually, when property rights first emerged. 
when we first started creating savings in the form of grain, livestock, food stuff, shelter, um, this was the original form of capital, and that's when property rights actually emerged. And when that property emerged, uh, the service provider that protected it, that secured its border from external threat, was government. That's what that's where government came from. So I think the digital digital age sort of reverts um, the large centralized nation state model back towards this localized protection service that government began as. There's there's one slight issue with that in that a lot of the ideas behind say Christian's uh, article with the sovereign company is that. A lot of companies these days are virtual. You know, essentially I run a virtual, let's say I run a virtual business. Like my staff are globally distributed. I've got people in the US. I've got people in Australia. I pay people digitally. I could pay them in Bitcoin. Um, I can't get a bank account at the moment, which is the most mind-blowing thing at the moment. Can't get a bank account. I've applied to five banks and been rejected by each one for different reasons. So I'm operating pretty much without a bank account. But that doesn't matter. I can do it, right? Uh, I hold the majority of the company's money in Bitcoin. But a lot of the companies, therefore, I deal with are international as well. They're not local. So if I was to have some kind of contract dispute with a with another company, how would you enforce that in the in the digital world? Because we do have the nation state to enforce contracts and to enforce the resolution of contracts. You know, you do pay potential fines or whatever scenario. How do you enforce that? In the digital world, there's a great uh, piece one? written by Parabolic Trav on Twitter, and he has a, a partner on that piece whose name I can't recall at the moment. I highly encourage everyone to go out and read this. It's called Bitcoin right. Contract Governance. And he describes a model where you can actually use multi signature um, schema on top of Bitcoin to provide this form of decentralized contract law enforcement. You know, it, it depends on the nature of the contract. Clearly, it's the more the more objective the terms are, the more dry code the relationship, the more easily it is um, to enforce this way. But the truth is that we it's not actually the state that's enforcing the contract law. It's the contract is really enforced between the parties initially, right? Like you you agree, you have a spirit of the agreement, you 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 embody that in terms. And then it's only when there's a dispute that can't be reconciled either directly or via arbitration that you then take recourse to the state and file a lawsuit or, or do whatever. So it's almost like this contract is governed in the shadow of the state in a way. It's just saying like, look, if you don't do this, I'm going to uh, mm -hmm. take this option. Mm -hmm. It's like, a, a, again, like we talked earlier, the, the option to do something is what's important. I have the option to take this to the courts and sue you if you don't, if we don't find alternative uh, means of reconciling it. So with this Bitcoin contract governance model, it actually, uh, which also will be mind-blowing in how disruptive potentially Bitcoin actually is, it could disrupt the centralized jurisdictional court model. You could have this free market of, uh, and I've only read the piece once, so I don't know it in detail, but it, essentially it was a free market of arbitrators that you could have you know, party A, party B, to a multi-sig contract and then party C is this arbitrator that you've, you've picked up in the free market. And then if there's any dispute, you can basically, you have recourse to the arbitrator who will make a decision based on certain criteria and can decide on the release of funds. So there is a free market component to this. 
I'm not too equipped to speak to it fully intelligently today, but there is an alternative out there, and I encourage you guys to read that piece. Next up, CK and Breed Love and I carry on the discussion of the sovereign company. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's talk about Ledger. Now listen, Ledger was the first hardware wallet I ever used, and I'm still using the Nano I bought four years ago today. I'm a big fan of the product because of its ease of use. And for someone like me, I always talk about this, but usability is really important. And it's not just the device. Ledger Live, the software that allows you to interact with the device, is really, really easy to use. Now, if you are interested in checking out Ledger, they do have a number of devices available, different devices for whatever your need is. Make sure you go and head over to ledger.com and check it out. That is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Okay, next, let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. The only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. Why, Pete? It's just because they're a sponsor, right? Nope. Nope, that's not it. Look, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, they are consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. And as you know, because I always go on about it, security is really important to me. But on top of that, they have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly today, but then never least, are my good friends over at BlockFi. Love these guys. Now listen, with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and you can start earning interest on your Bitcoin. I've been doing this for over a year now and I've earned over one Bitcoin in interest and referrals. I actually get referrals as well, which is really interesting. Now, also with BlockFi, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and you can take out a USD loan and you can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can fully manage your account on the go. And with their Visa rewards card coming soon, things are only going to get bigger and better with BlockFi. So much happening for the company. Now, if you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So Christian, one of the interesting things with becoming self-sovereign as an individual is quite easy. And if, if we're honest, we've had a good 10-year run where we can front-run the corporations you know, this latest Bitcoin run is really being you know, dominated by the idea of companies putting their treasuries into Bitcoin. You know, Sailor was the starting point, really. Uh, but we've seen Square. We've seen this Tesla move. I'm sure lots of other companies are thinking about it. But we've had 10 years to front run them. I'm also thinking in the idea of like a sovereign company, it is actually the small, nimble companies, like ones like myself with you know, four or five employees globally distributed where the entire business is online. I have the opportunity to kind of front run the larger comp- companies to become this kind of sovereign company. Do you recognize that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the word sovereign is a tricky word because, I mean, ultimately to be sovereign, you kind of have to be the top dog, right? So very, very few organizations are going to actually become sovereign. But in the process of becoming like kind of censorship resistant and anti-fragile, 
um, there is an opportunity to bloom into uh, what could be a sovereignty. Uh, so again, that's kind of a big reason why I focus in on companies with this article, because I just recognize that uh, multinational global corporations are the closest things to taking their sovereignty back completely. Um, so when I think of your business, you know, I think you can use Bitcoin and jurisdictional arbitrage to become extremely anti-fragile and, you know, start flirting with sovereignty. But um, it's going to take a little bit more scale for you to become a sovereign. You'd probably have to partner with a sovereign to help you, you know, in your path of becoming anti-fragile and, you know, kind of like, you know, you're turning into a cockroach. Like right now, if you are just domiciled in one country and using fiat, like you have no sovereignty, right? So you're just trying to claw some of that back. Um, and again, like we're already seeing, you know, nation states push the bound, or sorry, a big multinational network effect tech companies pushing the boundaries on sovereignty. And that's, again, why I, I, I think that that's going to be where it, you know, first really instrumentalizes itself. But individuals like you and I, small businesses holding their Bitcoin, uh, you know, holding their funds in Bitcoin, starting to domicile in different nation states, diversify which jurisdictions they're exposed to, you know, that, you know, on a grand scheme, that is also going to be huge and kind of forcing the hand of different nation states to start becoming more competitive and to start, um, you know, trying to do what they can uh, to compete rather than resting on their laurels. Um, so it's very exciting. Can, can we work through that idea that, um, you know, you talk about, I can't, I'm not big enough to be self-sovereign. It really is those who do have to dominate their markets. But yeah, you know, the idea of the sovereign individual is that you can be self-sovereign as an individual. So why as a company is that different? Well, I mean, I, it's like the long game, sure, individuals will become self-sovereign. And I think that there's already self-sovereign individuals like this is probably uh, someone who's typically frowned upon. But I would consider Vladimir Putin to be like the one of the only sovereign individuals today, um, maybe uh, the head of North Korea. I mean, you could point to several like, quote unquote, dictators like, yeah, they are sovereign. Right. But using these techniques to become more anti-fragile, uh, more censorship resistant as a company, as individuals, you know, those same techniques can be used by bigger entities and they themselves, again, can start, like I consider the bar is you need to be able to start competing with a nation state directly. That is sovereignty. And nation states are going to shrink because of this technology, but we're going to see alternative organizations grow. So, and, uh, you know, ultimately there can be people that achieve sovereign individual status they'll probably be leading these companies but is what you're saying is that as long as you're um ruled by some form of nation state under some form of government rules you can't essentially be sovereign yeah i mean you're just shopping around and that's going to help you uh become more sovereign claim sovereignty but uh, to be a full sovereign individual a full sovereignty uh you need an enormous amount of power right um you know, nation state level. I think power. This, it exists on a, it's on a gradient, right, guys? Like we talked about earlier, it's not sovereign, not sovereign. There's, hmm. first of all, there's different domains in life where you may have more or less sovereignty. Um, and the, the definition, by the way, I think is important here. Uh, I forget the, the, the name of the guy uh, who said the quote, but he said that sovereign is he who decides the exception. So it's, when you get to decide, you know, there's a general rule or guideline that we're, we're using to interoperate, 
but whoever gets to decide the exception to that rule effectively has sovereignty. So in these certain areas, right, with Bitcoin specifically, if you're in a fiat regime and the tax man says your funds are frozen, you need to go to court now to try to fight and get them back, you cannot claim any exception. There, you have no levers to pull, right, to protect yourself. But if you're in Bitcoin and that happens, there's not really anything they can do. You actually have full control over those funds. You maintain the exception. So they, they try to enforce a rule on you, but you have the exception to go anywhere else in the world. So that gives you sovereignty over your monetary uh, wealth or energy. And so I think, the, 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 again, the theme here is that the less attached you are to a locality, right? Because if you're, if you're rooted in a locality and you need whatever it is, you need to send your kids to that school or you need to source your tin from that mine, you have to be physically present in this place to run your life or run your business. That is what subjects you to the dominion of the monopoly on violence that, that's uh, locally predominant. But the more, say, informational, I guess, your business or your life, the more sovereign you can be in the digital age, right? Like you, Peter, you're just running a podcast. You could really do it anywhere in the world. Your team's already distributed. Your capital's already in Bitcoin. Like you, you're pretty much all the way there. You just would kind of have to leave uh, UK and, and um, you know, go negotiate maybe another better tax treatment somewhere. But that, the, the last piece is what I think Christian's getting to is you need a little bit more size or weight to be able to go today at least and actually go negotiate a more favorable tax treaty with a different jurisdiction, right? You're not really going to get that treatment as a smaller individual or small business, but over time as government, as states are shrinking and individuals are growing in power, this uh, negotiating leverage becomes a little more equalized between state and individual. Yes. And it's a couple of interesting points there because I've moved the the company money predominantly into Bitcoin. I hold six weeks, fiat cash flow um i've moved personal money well i'm essentially over 100 percent now because i'm leveraged uh so i have sovereignty over my money i've also with my team i've now said you can be paid any amount in bitcoin and i've had responses from five to twenty percent you know of their income coming in bitcoin because they're still going to pay fiat bills my weaknesses now you know my real weaknesses are any form of i don't know government pressure Mm. onto the platforms which host my content because that would be you know, if Apple and Spotify were forced to remove my content, yes, I could find somewhere on the dark web to host it and make it available, but I'm going to suddenly, you know, where I've done, say say I'm doing 750,000 downloads this month, next month I might do 100,000. So it, it really kills that part of the business. That's my current weakness. Um, are there other technologies, therefore, that are, are going to become important alongside Bitcoin for this? So let me jump in here. Uh, I think that's a great example. And we're, we're in this state of transition, right? Uh, personally, when I see Bitcoin, mm-hmm. I see Bitcoin as the impotence for the personal server revolution. Um, and right now, we are very, very much dependent on centralized cloud providers that are not sovereign, that are all kind of, you know, under the guy, they're, they're, they're kind of trapped by the nation state. So kind of seeing how more and more of our society starts to kind of own their own hardware and starts to run their own, you know, stuff. Uh, that is going to, again, it's going to, we're, we're in this process of shrinking the power of the nation state and growing the power of the individual. So 
I mean, it's a process, absolutely. And um, yes, you as a information business very well could be completely smothered, even though you still have access to your funds and your freedom. You know, there's it's a very easy way for you to kind of be smothered on the internet, but uh, that is changing. And you know, we've seen Donald Trump get deplatformed, and guess what? He's on Gab.com. He's on other places, and those places don't have nearly as much pull as Twitter. But you know, their importance and their relevance is increasing as well. Um, so, um, as we keep seeing more and more people get marginalized because of the growth of the state, we're also seeing, you know, kind of the uh, incentive to self host, to, uh, go to alternatives and those alternatives are going to become more significant. So I just think it's part of a process and really Bitcoin is the key that is unlocking, incentivizing and enabling all of this. And that's why, you know, if you're talking about this kind of stuff, you have to talk about Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is fundamental and necessary. But even with Parler and Gab.com, they could still face the same pressures. They could still censor Donald Trump if they want. I think what I'm getting at is, are we, are we, is there like a need for other decentralized technologies? Uh, obviously that don't need tokens and bullshit like that, but, but that enable people to host their business, host content, I call it self-hosting. Outside of this control. Yeah, just running your own hardware. That makes you censorship resistant and anti-fragile. But it's just the impotence for it and the network effects around that are still growing. I think there's a lot of interesting projects to this end, but you're absolutely right. If we're going to have a society that is premised on the free speech, which is basically what Western civilization is, right? That the ideas of anyone... um, should be free to rectify kind of the way we organize ourselves then we need in the same way we have immutable money now with bitcoin that we can express and receive value without any interference we need that for information as well which is kind of interesting that we got it for we sort of got it with the internet in the beginning that we had these and we do have it so we have these immutable protocols more or less like uh at different layers of the internet stack like tcp ip or http but at the application layer, we don't have it, right? The application layer is permissioned. And that's where you see these games being played where, uh, whatever, the president of the U.S. is getting censored off of Twitter and other social media platforms. So I think what we need is this, as, as Christian called it, self-sovereign compute or self-hosting. Um, and there's a few projects that are interesting in that, into that end. The Yurbit project, very ambitious, but would allow people to basically take total uh, sovereignty over their own digital existence. I think that we might actually see a lot of this be re-architected on top of Bitcoin. Maybe we'll see something like a lightning mm-hmm. uh, protocol-based messaging service. Uh, I know, Peter, you've done a podcast. It was really interesting with a guy talking about the impact of the lightning network on podcasting. Yeah, or and we could possibly see yeah, even social Curry. media platforms developed there to where it becomes a true free speech uh, digital platform, right? No one, again, if we're back to sovereign is he who can make the exception. Just like with Bitcoin, no one can make an exception to the database or the core rule set. Therefore, all users are basically maximally sovereign. Uh, we need that. We need those platforms to really get this uh, digital age going towards its, its uh, I guess, libertarian uh, promise. It's a, it's a fascinating transitional phase. Like, I don't know about you, Christian, but you're kind of watching these things play out step by step, things that people have predicted, things I've read about, 
a lot of stuff I read about on Nakamoto Institute when I first got into Bitcoin, I was like, yeah, yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> this is digital money, I get it, but come on. Like, we're actually seeing all the pieces of this kind of start to play out now. Yeah, and honestly, that's why I really recommend reading the book because once you kind of read The Sovereign Individual, I mean, there's a lot of other great resources out there, people thinking in first principles like Pierre and Michael Bidstein uh, with uh, Nakamoto or uh, the Nakamoto Institute. But once you kind of see it from the perspective of this is what um, moving on to the digital high seas is going to do to the world, and then we are actually living in that transition, like... Uh, you know, Marty Bent called 2020 the year of clarity at the beginning of 2020, and I fully believe it was the year of clarity. It showed us how free we are. It showed us the nature of our government. It showed us so many things. And, uh, you know, kind of having the purview of being a Bitcoiner, uh, have read several books that have kind of like thought through this transition to moving into the digital high seas and then actually watching it. It's uh, it's an amazing show and a lot of popcorn for sure. Are we not like as a group of Bitcoiners like this little weird part of the internet and our ideas are actually a little bit radical and the rest of the world are looking at us going, what the fuck are these people on about? Or do you think right now like this stuff is actually something like is a radical idea that is becoming mainstream? Well, if the market is, you know, the truth and Bitcoin is the fastest growing asset in human history. I'd say there is some grain of truth to what we're talking about. And you're, you're right that we are maybe this radical niche side of the internet talking about these, you know, crazy colossal ideas like the, the downfall of the nation state. But that's exactly what digital technology is, is that it enables us to transmute our imagination into reality more quickly than ever. And so, you know, if you get into like deep Austrian first principles, it's all about the free flow of, of information and goods, right? That That is the ideal market space. And the less inhibited it is by any interference, specifically government interference, the better it is for everyone, the more wealth it creates for everyone. And I'm, I'm literally rereading Human Action right now. And some of the things I read by Mises in 1949, I'm like, he just described the sovereign individual thesis. He just described the digital age. He just described Bitcoin. Um, so it's as if all of these things, they've been in the, the human you know, collective human imagination or psyche for some time, but they're just now uh, able to be expressed with, with digital technology. And, you know, it's, it, I think we're living through an actual, I don't know the actual word for it, but a renaissance of some sorts where we're at a very, uh, what the book would call a mega political transition, where we're going from an industrial age into a digital age. And it's, it's maybe hard to comprehend the, the profundity of that up close, but it could be, so extreme, you know, to look back on this in a couple of hundred years and think that we actually lived through it. We're actually blazing trail here that that we didn't even understand at the time. So it's kind of like we, the the as we push out onto these digital high seas, we are, you know, we had the ruthless capitalists or whatever they say that dominated the 20th century. Maybe we become the the sovereignists that dominate the 21st century. But but it's it's a lot easier to be rational with retrospect. I mean. This is no different from the early stages of the agricultural revolution, the early stages of the industrial revolution. And I'm sure there are some people who spotted what was happening, the others who just kind of like went along for the ride or, you know, didn't accept it. Um, and I, I know the book talks about like the digital revolution, which is this. I just think 
I keep thinking that perhaps you're right. Perhaps we are living in that moment and in like 100 years, 200 years, they'll be teaching this in the, well, not in the government school books because it would be the government, but do you know what I mean? This would be like part of history where we transitioned away from the, the nation state and it was like, look at that weird time where we had these uh, armies and nations that ruled over people and, you know, Bitcoin was the thing that enabled it. Um, so Christian, look, before we close out, I still think there's going to be some people listening to this and going, I, look, I get it. I get emails all the time from people, all different subjects. Well, I talk about my business and putting money in Bitcoin. I'll, I'll get like 10, 20 emails saying, oh, how'd you do that? I, I want to do that for my company. There's going to be people with, certainly I think it's going to appeal to people with small businesses, distributed businesses, online businesses who are thinking, I need to, I need my business to become more self-sovereign. And and I would say there's two reasons to do it, You know, not just a defense against the state, but actually I, I think it gives you a competitive business advantage. Um Certainly making my business primarily Bitcoin based has given me a in just capital alone has given me a lot of advantage. I can launch new I can launch a new extensions on my business a lot easier these days. If if somebody's thinking about this, where would you direct them? You know, in terms of things to think about, what they should be reading. Obviously you're gonna tell them to read the book, but what else should they be thinking about? Okay, well, I mean, I would say that just owning Bitcoin is not enough and just owning exposure to mm-hmm. Bitcoin is not enough. Um, really, what I outline in the article is three steps to self-sovereignty. Number one is you need to hold your wealth in Bitcoin, uh, a censorship-resistant, inflation-resistant store of value money. Um, next step is you actually have to hold and validate your own Bitcoin, right? So if you, you when you hold your Bitcoin in a custodian like yes you lose you you kind of don't have to deal with some of the uh personal responsibility required to safely custody keys but you also forego many of bitcoin's censorship resistant features that enable it that kind of enable you to become more anti-fragile and then lastly and i think most importantly is this jurisdictional arbitrage facet, right? Ultimately, holding your own keys and holding your value in Bitcoin enables you to better take advantage of jurisdictional arbitrage, which is, in my opinion, the key of this whole revolution and the key and the the main thesis of uh, the sovereign individual is jurisdictional competition. It's no longer being trapped in the jurisdiction that you're born in and having the ability to vote with your feet. Um, So you need all three components. You need to Hold your value in Bitcoin, censorship-resistant, uh, anti-fragile money. You need to validate and hold those keys yourself, and then so that way you actually have the value. Um, you're not trusting anyone, and then you need to set your business up in a way that you take advantage of, you know, multiple jurisdictions or a jurisdiction that is going to give you guarantees. Um, but that jurisdictional arbitrage aspect is super important. And the beautiful thing about uploading the the economy in 2020. To the digital high seas, I'm I'm going to start using that, Robert, because I just I think it's a really apt an- uh, analogy. But once you've uploaded to the digital high seas, like guess what? You can kind of find your post and you can broadcast everywhere. You can serve the entire world, and it really does not matter where you are jurisdictionally. You don't have to be in this kind of uh, you know metropolitan hub anymore because the internet is the metropolitan hub. Uh, so uh, you can't be a sovereign company without you know, the, those second two factors of holding your keys and jurisdictional arbitrage. But again, I, I just think that all of them logically make sense. And ultimately, Bitcoin enables that jurisdictional arbitrage, which is, it, it, it's so extremely exciting. Nice. Breedlove, you got any final comments? Anything you want to add to that? 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all those points. I mean, you've got to, you can't hold paper Bitcoin and think that you're self-sovereign because you're just assuming counterparty risk. Again, your counterparty gets to decide the exception, right? If they disappear with your Bitcoin or they get hacked or they go bankrupt, then you're dead in the water. Like you've got to hold your own Bitcoin. You've got to run your own node. I would add to that too, that to play this game of jurisdictional arbitrage, you really need citizenship optionality. Um, a lot of people call this multi-flag theory. Uh, this is sort of a, a new space I'm exploring myself, but just figuring yeah. out if things go south in your home, right? If the UK for you, Peter, just gets super draconian overnight or they enforce some law that's just not acceptable, what do you do? Like, what's your plan B? Where do you go next? Katie, the Russian. Um, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot easier if you have prepared for that, right? If you already have an alternative passport or visa or whatever to another country versus trying to scramble in the moment that everyone's rushing for the exits, right? This is the Talebian, uh, everyone's rushing to exit the theater and there's a, the door is just kind of one size, you know, like you end up bidding a lot more to get out. So it's better to do it in advance than do it in the moment. Um, and if you want to go even further out on that self-sovereignty spectrum, I think the 3D printing of everything is interesting, but specifically firearms. Uh, the fact that we can now print firearms um, to protect ourselves from from predation uh, is really interesting. I think that'll be increasingly relevant uh, to the symmetry of violence going forward. And then I think taking, you know, just general survivalist courses, like I, I'm not trying to sound tinfoil hat doom and gloom here, but like it doesn't hurt to be prepared for all possible outcomes. Um, Cause I think the big, the big thing here with the sovereign individual thesis is that the, the ultimate outcome is actually quite a beautiful world. Like we're a lot more free. We have a lot more wealth. We have a lot more control of our own lives, but the transition is highly uncertain. Mm -hmm. We don't really know what that looks like going from the centralized model to the decentralized model. So in that transition, you really just need to be prepared for all eventualities. Yeah. So I don't disagree that I think that's the, that's the bit that I think about a lot is the transition itself is likely bloody. The transition um, away from the state, the state not accepting things is likely uh, bloody is likely a revolution and then the early kind of stages of organizing yourself with you know with a smaller or if if, if no state itself will likely be bloody that it would likely be uh, a scenario where there's a lot of figuring out of how this actually works um so very interesting well listen look appreciate you both coming on uh breed love we're going to follow this up we're going to do the sovereign in individual itself like i said i'm three quarters of the way through it's taken a long time because i'm I'm going through slowly. I'm keeping a lot of notes and I'm repeating a lot of sections, but I'm looking forward to covering that. Christian, it's been great fun to get you on the show. I'm going to share the show, uh, the article you wrote out in the show notes. Everyone should check it out. Christian, if people want to follow you, where can they do that? Yeah, guys. So I'm um, very active on Twitter um, at CK underscore snarks, starting to uh, play around with Clubhouse as well. Uh, same handle at CK underscore snarks. Uh, and I'm leading things up over at Bitcoin Magazine. So of course, for everything Bitcoin related and a lot of the best articles and thought leadership both these guys have contributed to, um, go check out BitcoinMagazine.com. And yeah, I got to plug the conference, Bitcoin 2021. 
b.tc backslash conference. That's where you can get your tickets to the Bitcoin conference in Miami this June 4th and 5th. Super, super excited for that. Uh, Bitcoin 2019 was an absolutely fantastic event. Companies that are making a huge impact in the space were formed there, and we're hoping to repeat and do it bigger and better in Miami this year. Nice one. Well, I'm hoping I can get over. I'm hoping the planes will be flying at that point. Breed Love, how do people follow you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well, uh, at BreedLove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. And then uh, just launched the What Is Money show. So it's kind of a podcast and YouTube channel. Uh, you can find that at whatismoneypodcast.com uh, or just search it on YouTube. Brilliant. Look, love you both. Appreciate having you both on. Hopefully we'll meet up in person soon because it's been far too long. Christian, I used to get to see you every couple of months and now it's been over a year. So hopefully soon enough, guys. Take care. Appreciate you coming on. Cheers, Peter. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Christian. What a banger of a show. God, I love talking to Breedlove. But also Christian, man. We don't hear enough from that dude. I've known him for a long time. He's a good friend. It's really good to get him on the show for the first time. Look, this is a massively interesting topic. I don't think that Tesla or MicroStrategy were necessarily thinking about this when they bought Bitcoin. And as Michael Saylor says, or has said, it was to protect his $500 million melting ice cube. And the added level of sovereignty is almost an unintended consequence of Bitcoin's monetary policy. But it's very interesting to watch and play out. It's something that I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm thinking about it with my company. You know, it's not a big company, but look, it's my living. And I have a number of people work for me. I'm thinking about the sovereignty and I've been gradually moving my company funds into Bitcoin. So I'm starting to think about all the other attack vectors and how I become a sovereign company and a sovereign individual as well. But look, great subject. So I can't wait to get Breedlove back on soon. We're going to record a banger about the sovereign individual. It might be, end up being like a two or three parter. Dude, that, that dude, man, he's so smart. Anyway, look, if you've got any questions you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. And right now I'm getting so many emails. I'm getting like 30 a day, but I will make time to reply to you. Be patient. It might take a couple of days. Also, if you want to support the show, if you've been listening to a long time, go and leave me a goddamn review, right? Just head over to iTunes. Five star if you think I deserve it. One star. Look, if you think the show's shit, go up there. Give me one star. I can take it. Listen, outside of that, go and head over to neveredit.com. Sign up to my newsletter. That is growing fast, which is very cool. I'm also going to be turning it into a news desk somehow. And also over on Defiance, we've got the Bitcoin dealers of Beirut. That is defiance.news. Listen, I love you all. Thanks for checking the show out. I will see you all on Friday.